Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Hey guys, we love Ray Allen Manufacturing. They have everything you need when it comes to dogs. Uh, their, their integrity is way up there. We get all of our stuff from them. They have an amazing website, easy to follow, great customer service, great shipping. It's our favorite company. They've been with us for a long time. We have a great relationship with them. RayAllen.com for everything that you need for dogs, period. RayAllen.com. Speaking of stuff we love, another one of the great partnerships we have is with our friends at Dogtra. The guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, the ball trainers, which I use all the time at the kennel. Um, So if it's electronic and it's used for dog training, Dogtra is probably the best way you can go. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Hit them up at Dogtra.com. All right, guys, the biggest and baddest canine conference in the U.S. every year is HITS. And, uh, you know, because of COVID, it got pushed back. Now, next year, it is July 6th through the 9th in Scottsdale, Arizona, at what we're being told is an unbelievable five-star resort. July 6th through the 9th, 2021, HITSK9.net. We get it. Fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need high-quality food with great ingredients to be able to work throughout the day. That's why we like our friends at KineticDogFood.com. Great for working and sporting breeds. You've all heard mine and Ted's stories by now, being tagged by a dog and using quick derm for a quick treatment before we could get to the doctor's office. But it's no exaggeration. This stuff is awesome. Once daily treatment for any skin, skin conditions or small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big issues. Comes in sprays, ointments, or dressing. Quick Derm is great at creating a protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason to not have a bottle of this in your car, your kennel, your first aid cabinet. Check them out at vetcare.us. Put in the discount code 10WDR. All right, everybody, we are back. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers, normally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but Eric and I are in Hammond, Louisiana. We were just in Hammond, Indiana, um, and we're in the tail of two Hammonds. We're in uh, just north of uh, Lake Pontchartrain out here. at the. I can't pronounce the sheriff's office here. Um, <laughs> I can't pronounce it, but Hammond PD is hosting us. Uh, Sheriff's Parish or the Sheriff's Office here has some guys here. We got guys from all over the state and girls. Um, what do we have? Like twenty-one or twenty-two teams today? Twenty-one. Twenty-one. Yeah, we had access to the shoot house today, doing all kinds of crazy shit, doing the the environmentals, uh, doing the grip checks, targeting checks, and all that kind of stuff. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of uh, an HRD seminar, which is day two and day three, which is where we do all the fun shit and break stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, how'd day one go, Eric? I'm tired, man. It's it was good. Um, good group of of handlers. Good group of dogs. You know, typical of of all of these. We find some holes that we got to start working on. Almost yep. all of those holes are environmental, or a lack of exposure to some stuff. You know, um, yep. we had some dogs come in and hadn't had not seen a tricep bite at all, um, and then so you know they were kind of weird about that. And we we go over all that. That's a thing. Um, for folks that haven't been to an HRD, one one of the big things we do is <clears throat> it's not we're not trying to like shut down your dog or anything like that. We're trying to help you fix some issues and then give you things to do when you go home. Because in three days we can really see a lot of improvement in dogs, but it's going to take you know a lot more than that. But 
Um, so we, it was good. There's um, there's a female handler here with a uh, red Malinois. Oh God! That has and a, he's a bobtail a, too. God. He's yes. got. He's a bobtail. Uh, if I'm telling you right now, if, if she isn't careful, I'm gonna steal that motherfucker. Yeah, and I saw him in the nice dog. Yeah, we I saw him in the fucking parking lot last night, and I was like, oh fuck, a red Malinois. They're, they're always just mean. <laughs> like, there's fucking assholes. Anybody listen to this has a red Malinois. Your dog's a dick. I guarantee it. And he's a bobtail. The only thing he's missing is a fucking floppy ear. Team floppy ear, bobtail, and red, and he would just be double. <laughs> Holy shit, that yeah, dog's he's, gnarly. Uh, He's in shape. He looks good. Yeah. He handled all the stuff so far really well. Uh, he had a nice clean out on the one scenario that we did. Um, she's lucky. She's got a real nice dog. Yeah. So I told her, I said, hey, your dog sucks. Put him in the truck over there. I'll, I'll take care of him. <laughs> I'll, take him. I'll take him back to Ohio. <laughs> yeah. She did not fall for it. So. No. Yeah. Well, it's all right. Yeah, she's a good handler, too. So I expect that team to do pretty well the next two days. So, um, yeah, other than that. Uh, it's SSDD. We got uh, we announced the SWAT thing. Um, we've now announced the instructors, uh, and I think we're gonna add one more. Uh, we gotta wait to hear back from him until um, we get back from this deal. But then that'll be updated, and then we've already got that scheduled for next year with Albany, uh, Albany City PD in New York. Uh, we still got two more HRDs this year um, in Salt Lake City next month in November, and then December in uh, Michigan. So uh, we're going to try and break the record for how cold it was in Buffalo last year in November. (laughs) Fuck that. I'm still cold from that. Uh, That was brutal. Um, But those guys, I think, have Michael Kamisic out in November to do an admin seminar. So if you're in the area and and go see Michael Kamisic with, I think it's, I don't know if it's Buffalo PD or Erie County Sheriff's Office. I think one of them is hosting him. And, uh, I mean, he, we had him on three or four episodes ago, and obviously the guy is a case law ninja and does a great admin course. So if you're out there, go see that. Um, yeah. But uh, So who do we got going on tonight? Well, tonight we've got a guy named Andrew Ramsey from Ramsey Canine. Uh, this is going to be pretty interesting, so Andrew will get into his uh, background here pretty soon. But it's, um, you know, it, it's his wide variety of experience he's managed to um, – focus it into a way to take you know the this stuff he learned from doing working dog detection stuff and to help out civilians so they can do nose work and competition stuff so uh with us today is andrew ramsey andrew how's it going i'm I'm doing very good i'm happy to be here and uh, glad to talk to you guys yeah so um, you have a pretty uh, interesting background um, from wiener dogs to the DOD. Um, so, like, <laughs> what's the uh, yeah. what's the common theme here? Because we're going to get into some of the detection stuff. But uh, sure. how did we get into working dogs, and how did we get to this conversation? Okay, um, so I'll, I'll kind of give a little bit of my, my background here, and you guys can feel free to interrupt me or... or give me on or off topic whenever you, you please. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a definitely a dachshund, you know, wiener dog enthusiast. And, um, I grew up having dachshunds in Texas. I grew up in Dallas and, um, about, I guess it was about two, in 2003, I wanted to get a big dog, like a large dog. So I was like, no, I should get a German shepherd. And, um, I, I stumbled upon the Malinois. And I, I got my, my first Malinois Fusil in 2003, and that just entirely changed the course of my life. <laughs> um, 
you know, normally it doesn't go so well when someone who doesn't have any dog experience gets a, a dog like that. But um, it, it yeah, definitely changed the course of my life and, and many things have happened since then. But the breeder, uh, I was living in Austin, Texas at that point, and he, my Malinois came from California, which is where I am now. Um, told me, oh, he's going to need a job and he's going to need the stuff to do. But um, one thing led to another, and I got involved with a club that was training for French ring and Mondial ring. And um, after doing that for about a year or so, I, at, at many points in time, I would say throughout my interaction with dogs and dog people, I kind of I feel that I've been lucky or at the right place at the right time, just the, uh, the stars aligned, whatever you want to call it. But I got a really rare and kind of unique opportunity to work for the government, for the military at Lackland in the breeding program, in the, in the Malawa breeding program or the puppy program, as they would call it. And um, I was really trying to, at that point, do anything I could to get my foot in the door into like a working dog type career. Um, and again, this was in 2003. So um, after pursuing that, I, like I said, I got the opportunity to move to San Antonio and work within the, the breeding program there at Lackland. And um, I was at Lackland for a total of six years. Four years I spent in the breeding program, or the puppy program. I think I was there for 33 litters of Malinois. Um, last two years that I was there, from 2008 to 2010, the, the Air Force took some global war on terrorism funds, and they, what they wanted was to hire some civilians uh, DTS or, you know, where the, the trainers are there at Lackland from all branches of the military, you know, they want to have some civilians there for continuity that would uh, be there longer, like long-term, as opposed to someone that gets there that's in the military that's there for a while. And then, you know, they deploy or they get out of the military or they, they go somewhere else. Cause as many people understand, or as you know, you guys know, there's kind of a difference between a handler and a trainer. And when someone is sent there to Lackland, to be a trainer, it kind of takes them a little while to get up to speed on how things are done. And, um, you know, just having handled a trained dog in the field to being there and actually starting to train dogs, it you know, takes a little while, but before you know it, then they, they go somewhere else. So in 2008, the Air Force um, was going to hire these civilians, and I was one of the civilians selected to do that. Um, one of the prerequisites was you had to have been through a handler's course and I had not been through any kind of handlers course, so it was kind of cool. They sent me through the handlers course as a civilian um, in 2000, 2007. But then, um, so I did that for the last two years, which gave me a different experience as far as working the dogs that, you know, are primarily European. Um, it's very different from working with the puppy program dogs. Um, and a lot of the stuff I can go over in more detail or not. I don't know how, how much, you, you know, quickly or... Um, how slow you want me to explain some of this, but 2010 or 2000, July, 2009, I visited California. Um, this was before Michael Ellis had the, his school for dog trainers. He used to do a sport clinic in the summertime. Started to get, at that point, I came out and visited California and really liked a lot of this, the dog stuff that was going on here. And so I left the military working dog program and, um, March of 2010, moved to California, started Ramsey Canine, and 
my original intention was uh, primary law enforcement in terms of selling dogs and maintenance training and, and the like, and I did that for a little while and still have involved with some of that. But then the, the recreational sport of nose work kind of started to snowball and wasn't really my intention, but I, I just kind of ended up doing a lot more of that. So, um, and I, you know, I've been doing that since then. So I can get into the details of that as well, but that is, that's kind of a, a quick explanation, I would say. Um, some of those things. Well, so they sent you through a handler school as uh, as a civilian, so that you could meet the requirements. Um, what was uh, what was that like? Uh, it was kind of like, um, and I, I don't want to say this with any kind of insult, but it would be like someone who'd been a handler for quite a while going back and going through a handler's course with people that had not been handlers. You know, um, mm. and when I was uh, at the puppy program there was actually for part of a day for one of the, um, like one of the days while the, the students were going through the handlers course, they would come and watch myself and one of the other trainers work the puppies because it was, it was, you know, the puppy program was quite different than the other stuff that was going on at 341st. And, and that's kind of how I got into it. Um, originally back then was because, you know, the military was used to buying adult green dogs. They weren't as familiar with, um, you know, with puppies. And so, you know, back then, Stuart Hilliard was a huge, huge part of it, and well, and still is. But um, I kind of was fortunate to get into the puppy program because of my interaction with young Malinois, like at sport dog clubs. But going through the handless course, it was kind of like a, I wouldn't say a paid vacation, but it was three months where I got to go and, um, you know, I was given a trained dog, you know, it was block one and block two, do the patrol portion first. And um, it was, it was fun, you know, I, um, got to be a student and go through that. And, um, when it was done, then I, the, the thing that's kind of interesting about it is I have like the certificate of, you know, training from the air force that you get when you go through the handlers course, but I'm not in the system because the way that they <laughs> did it, it was kind of like, it was kind of off the books, like where my contractor, um, cause I was, I was originally a contractor for the army <laughs> under behavioral medicine when the breeding program was under the army originally when I got there. Then it went into the Air Force, and um, I was an Air Force civilian at the very end. But um, the agreement they had was they, my contractors would continue to pay me, but they were not billed anything for me to go through the course. So it's like I have a certificate. I mean, I, you know, my, my instructors will say, yeah, I was there. You know, photos and everything, but I'm not in the system. And it was just something that had to kind of be done to go through like USA jobs and everything, I guess, to, um, to, to get the civilian job that I had the last two years, which, which was just a totally different experience as well. That, you know, that was kind of a prerequisite. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my, all of my time at Lackland, especially in the puppy program to, um, to see that many litters of dogs and work with a lot of people that were extremely knowledgeable and, um, I was fortunate that I, I kind of, I got to do almost every um, position within the puppy program. I was originally hired to be what they called a puppy consultant. And I'm kind of trailing off from your handless course question, but. No, no, you're going um, straight in. You're going straight yeah. into puppies was okay. where we wanted to go next anyway. Okay. So yeah, continue. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll continue. So yeah, I was originally hired to um, be what they call the puppy consultant, which is like the foster coordinator 
And uh, my job was to select and recruit families in the San Antonio area to raise the and uh, the Malinois for us. And their jobs were not to train them in any way. It was just basically for social and environmental exposure. And um, my job, like in terms of how they viewed it, was I was a force multiplier, whereas they were paying me as one person to go out and train all these different families or people. Um, what we wanted them to do so the Malinois could come back to us uh, when, when I was there originally, it was seven months. I believe now they come back at six months. Um, I'm, I'm not totally up to date on how they do it now. But when I was there, they were in the foster homes from the time they were two months until they were seven months. So for the first year that I was there, I would select and recruit these families. And I quickly found out the best thing to do was to make sure, well, first of all, find the right person or family to, to do this but to make sure that they were happy and that it went well. So they would want to do it again. And then that second go around, they already kind of knew what they were doing. So my job was a lot easier, but um, you know, I would, I would find the appropriate family for the appropriate puppy from the litters. And then they would bring the puppy back to Lackland every two weeks and I would get them onto the base and we would have um, what was called puppy class where they basically, they would hand the puppy off to me. I would go, we were back, at that point in time, we were in a different building than they're in now. But we will go down these stairs to this basement area, and then they could watch through this window. And I just would test, like, the, you know, environmental stability of the dog, um, desire to chase and retrieve thrown objects, um, possession, a lot of the typical stuff, you know, that you look at when selecting dogs. Uh, grip, desire to, you know, to bite, um, whether, you know, it's a rag or, like, a little tiny Belgian puppy sleeve or, you know, depending on how old they were. And, and those kind of things. So um, I, I did that for the first year, and that was a ton of fun. And, I mean, it, it, all, it was all fun. But ultimately, I wanted to be, you know, a trainer working with the older dogs. And after I had been there for that year, a position opened up where I could, I could do that. And that was where I first got um, a much more exposure to detection training. Prior to that point, I just knew, like, from the what I was doing with my personal dog for Mondio Ring, like obedience and bite work, but I didn't really know anything about detection formally. And I was very, very fortunate to to work with a guy who's now, he's deceased actually, but his name was Art Underwood. And Art enlisted in the Air Force at 18, um, went security forces, went canine, uh, handled the dog. Licklider was actually his kennel master a long time ago, I think like in 86 mm. or something. Um, but he got out of the Air Force and had been doing contract stuff and training dogs and then ended up back at Lackland. And so he's been training detection dogs pretty much his whole adult life. And so um, at that point, there were not a So this is, I'm going back to 2005. At that point, there weren't, a, as a whole in terms of DOD or the military, there weren't a lot of focused response dogs they were just kind of starting to trickle in and he was one of the people that was doing a lot of that. Um, and so that's how I learned to do it from him. There was also some guys over at TSA, you know, for Homeland Security, they were training focus response dogs then, but most of the dogs were, you know, sit, stay, pay dogs to go to store, sit, turn, look at a handler and toss them Kong or tennis ball. But I, that's not the way I learned it. I learned, um, like the, in the, if you've anyone seen like my um, 
the two videos I did through Learberg, a lot of the earlier stuff that I did, it was kind of more based on that. And that was the foundation for the evolutionary process of how um, I went, I, I've got to where I am today with how I train detection. That was the basis for it. But, um, and again, I'm kind of trailing off on different things here. <laughs> but, um, You're like a Malinois. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all, all over the place here. So, um, yeah, so I, I was very fortunate to learn from him. Um, I, I worked under, you know, Stuart or Dr. Stuart Hilliard or Doc, whatever you know people want to call him. He'd gone on to a position as an evaluator. Pretty much the same hiring cycle when I hired in, he was going over to the evaluation side of things. But that was super cool for for me. He uh, was someone that I really looked up to and thought, you know, that was uh, cool just to eat, to even be around. I, if I knew him. For this dates me or kind of a lot of this stuff, but there was a series on Animal Planet called Canine Boot Camp, and like in 2002, maybe I was a long time ago. And they they showed Lackland and they showed a lot of this, this you know, the stuff that was going on there. And and Stewart was on there, Dr. Hilliard was on there. And I was like, oh, it's really cool. This guy is not in the military, but he has a lot to say with how things are, you know, being trained in certain aspects. And then I also knew of him from early Malinois history and then like the, the body bite suit video, that old VHS video, uh, most mm-hmm. probably get on DVD now. Um, and just all that. So, you know, it was cool to, to, um, get to Lackland and be around these people. It was, you know, really like a dream come true in many ways. Um, yeah, so that, that there's some information I can, I can add more to that or, you know, yeah, we'll you go like, back. To, we'll we'll take you back sure. a little bit, and we'll go back and okay. forth here. So, um, back okay. at the when you're at the puppy program, is it first of all, is the puppy program still a thing? Is it still on? It is, and so I um, I don't know. I you know I can't speak exactly on how they're doing things now, except I'm I'm sure it's still awesome. I will say that <laughs> it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, so the puppy program is still around. When when I was there, and again, I was there from 2004 to 2008. We the kind of the, what they expected of us was they were hoping that we could provide 10% of the total dogs the military needed each year. So I know that they are trying to produce more than that now, but I don't know exactly the statistics. Um, but they, they are still there. And I, like I said, I believe they, they pull the dogs out of the foster families at six months now. So, yeah, when I was there, they came back at seven months and we trained them for essentially five months in, in terms of bite work and detection. We put them on test and chlorates and taught them a focus response. And then they went through the same process that like when the procurement team uh, would go to Europe or to evaluate dogs, like the same test that they would use, our puppies had to pass the same test. And mm. but yeah, that just that whole thing was very cool because those puppies were tested. Um, There's tons of, of data and information that was collected but you know they were tested at eight weeks 12 weeks 16 weeks seven months and then the final one at a year and then um and again a lot of that is was Stuart hilliard that, that kept track of all that the data and stuff in terms of okay when should um we should decide to cut the losses and like when i was there it was seven months we would we would kind of know by the four month test that we thought how we thought the dogs were going to do. And then again, the puppy consultant was watching the dog every two weeks when they came back to Lackland between four months and seven months. 
But then the seven-month test was where we decided if we were going to adopt the dog out, you know, they'd be spayed or neutered and then adopted out, or they would stay in training. And we'd have them for those five months until they would go through that test, the same as the, you know, the green dogs from Europe. So long answer, so yes, yes think, they, it, it is still there. <laughs> do, you, do you think in that time frame you were there that they met that goal of the certain the percentage that they were trying to provide to the whole military? Um, I, I mean, I would have to go back and look at like Excel files and stuff, but I know that success wise, like towards the end of when I was there, it was about 54% of the dogs that the program was breeding were being utilized. Um, but in terms of numbers, so, you know, the military often needed, if I had to guess, I'd say between four and 600 dogs a year. So, you know, we were needing to supply about 80 or so, you know, I mean, um, you know, 40 plus. And, um, yeah, th there's, there was a lot of kind of controversy about that because it's definitely not the most cost effective way to do things, you know, in, in, in many, many ways, because those dogs that are not working out, you know, you're still paying for, to feed them and medical and all that stuff until they're adopted out. But, but you know, um, there's something to be said about having a homegrown program in terms of just research purposes, but also like a foreign dependency on, you know, getting dogs. I know in recent years, there's been um, public officials that have thought that's crazy that we have to buy so many dogs from Europe and instead that we should breed them all. And, you know, they don't really have a, a proper understanding of the way that all works like you know like you guys do it's you know there's a lot of great dogs here in the united states but that's the way it's kind of always been done is to go over there to where there's just a lot of them to select from but um yeah in terms of how many they are producing now and what percentages i'm not sure but i would say when i was there we were pretty close to meeting the numbers of what we were you know being asked to do and it was a really small program when I was there, like, I, I think it is a little bit larger now, but there were not a lot, lot of people that did the different, the various roles within that program. You know, we had a couple of people that would work in the welping kennel. Um, we had the puppy consultant, like I said, that selected and recruited foster families and dealt with the puppies from the two month to seven month period. And then most of the time I was there, there was two trainers um, that handled all the dogs that were from seven months to a year. Which, which is where I got a whole lot of decoy experience and detection experience because we would have anywhere from normally be about 20 dogs in training. You know, you'd pull 12 to 15 a day. Um, and it was just, you know, a never ending cycle of dogs that you were working in that seven month to one year period. Whereas the last two years that I was at Lackland when I was a civilian trainer and primarily training the dogs from Europe, at that point in time, the civilians were considered uh, SMEs or, you know, subject matter experts. And we were assigned four dogs and the military guys and girls were assigned three. So it was a big difference of, from going from having like me and one other trainer working 20 plus dogs to being assigned four dogs um, at GTS. 
in that time, so when a puppy litter is bred, like everyone, like I don't know if I mean they still do the double name thing, right? Like if their name starts with an right, A, yeah. it's a double A. So that's how you yep. can tell if it's a, if it's a Lackland dog or is bred at the yep. from the program. So um, right. those dogs, like, what does the first eight weeks? One of the things that we talk about a lot on here, and I was we there's a discussion going on on. Um, one of the forums on Facebook that a lot of people follow, um, the Elio Cannon discussion, which um, is about the only place that's not a fucking dumpster fire. Um, so <laughs> there's a discussion going on in there about green dogs right now, like what a green dog is, what constitutes a green dog. And, you know, I, there are very, very, very few trainers in the country, um, military or law enforcement, that have had the luxury of raising a puppy, like breeding a dog, selecting a puppy out of a litter, raising that dog, training it and then finishing it and then passing it off to a department and then going on to a very successful career in law enforcement. That, that is a rarity in law enforcement. And that is, I mean, because I, let's face it. I mean, most guys are handlers. I mean, they're fucking cops. They're not dog trainers. So, I mean, and I know that guys have gotten lucky. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've done it quite a bit. Um, one of the most successful dogs in my area is a dog that we raised and train, um, Valor. He's a fucking gangster, but so you know, what does the, and we talk about this in this forum and Eric and I have had multiple people on and, um, you know, the, it's such an important portion of the dog's upbringing in life. Like in, I say it all the time, you know, an LAPD tried to do this. I didn't, we didn't ask Gooseby about it when he was on, but I mean, we can have him back on and we can talk about it, but I think they tried it and he'll be the first one to tell you that it was not a success. Um, and, yeah. um, now while LAPD is really, really good at picking green dogs, um, and finishing them for how they use them. Um, Gooseby, I think, would be the first one to tell you that it was not a very successful program for them. Um, I think it may have been yeah. successful, but um, I think they kind of ran into some of the problems that you did with um, some of the costs. Like, well, we got 15 puppies and two work. What the fuck do I do with the other 13? Yeah. So um, it's kind of like, well, you know, and of course it's fucking California. So everybody is just all up in their shit about everything. So. Um, what does yep. the first eight weeks, you know, eight to ten ish weeks of that look like for all of those puppies? So, I mean, the first in when again, I'll talk about when I was there. When I was there, they they were there till eight weeks. I don't know if they leave any earlier or later now, but um, nothing too exciting for the first four weeks, you know, for sure. Right. Um, and even after that, nothing. You know, not a whole lot is going on in that in that initial stage, and um, you know, while they're still at Lackland in the Welping Kennels, there, um, there, you know, they would have people come, and there was, you know, there's kind of that balancing act of do you want a lot of people to come and handle them, or do you, or you know, the risk of parvo and and whatnot there. Yeah. So, um, in terms of like, like what were they being exposed to in terms of surfaces and sounds and a lot of stuff like that when when i was there there wasn't tons and tons of that going on while they were still there up to that point where they went out to, to the families and to the homes um you know so it was basically just making sure that they were they were healthy then when they went out to the families they were they were again after you know a little bit of time had passed where you know we weren't so worried about um particularly parvo but that was more when the social and environmental stuff was really emphasized. And then when they would come back to Lackland every two weeks and the public consultant person would evaluate them, they would kind of try to look for holes in, in within those two areas 
and then try to give guidance to the families as far as what they could do. And also, they would also kind of try to work on that stuff while they were there briefly. Um, I don't know now if they are doing anything where the puppy is dropped off during that time period and stays within the kennels at Lachlan, because I know that's something that's been has uh, been discussed most of the time that I was there. We did not do it because, um, but the reason for wanting to do that, um, a lot of it had to do with the kind of the shock of the puppy coming back at, you know, the seven month um, time period and going down into the kennel environment from living with the foster family. And because of that, I would always really, I would take the families down there before they got a dog and show them, hey, this is where your dog is going to come when it returns. You know, why are you doing this? You're doing this for patriotic reasons to help, you know, your country and the military. Or are you doing this because you want a, a puppy to sit on your couch with you and, you know, whatnot. So I'm saying you're doing a disservice if you if you, if you raise this dog a certain way. But, um, again, I'm trailing off. Going back to what they were doing in that first time period, there, there wasn't a whole lot of things that they were being exposed to when, again, when I was there, that would be for the purposes of, you know, environmental reasons to help them later on in life. Um, if, you know, if, so when, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks that like, as soon as the puppy's born, there's there, they just have a continuous stream of sounds and noises and music yeah. and, gunfire and helicopter sounds and all that playing all the time. Um, I, I would kind of give my, um, sorry, not to interrupt, but I'll give kind of my take on that. I've seen people like just so much of it is genetics. Like I've seen people that, that did horrible jobs on exposing dogs to a lot of that stuff. You know, some, you know, didn't necessarily whelp the litter the way they should, or, you know, shown the dogs the pictures and stuff they should have seen later on. And the, and the dogs were, had extremely sound, good nerves. Now, I mean, you see less of that with, Malinois possibly, you know, compared to like shepherds and, and whatnot. But, you know, I've also seen dogs where they did everything and it wasn't enough, you know. So, so much of it, you know, a lot of that is the genetic component to the dog or the breed. Um, but I think they need to see all that stuff for sure. You know, whether or not I would try to show it to them at that really, really young, you know, state of their development prior to eight weeks you know, probably not as much more after eight weeks, you know, and ideally before six months, like I wanted to see as much stuff as possible before six months of age. And then when they would come back from the, uh, from the, uh, foster family, was, was it pretty, pretty quickly they would start, you would start putting, um, some of the odorant work on them? Yeah. So they would, again, so when I was there, they came back at seven months, um, we would let them kind of sit in the kennel, not sit. I mean, they would they'd come out, but they kind of would adjust from not being with a family. Because when I first got there in 04, they were tested almost right off the bat when um, they, they got back from the family at seven months. And we found that they benefited from a little bit of an adjustment period. So, you know, they get several days to kind of adjust. And that, those, that I think that does more so not, not as much for maybe the rock star dogs, but maybe some of those dogs that are more in the middle. And you, I think you kind of see that with a lot of the litters. You see the dogs that are really hard to mess up because they're just they're really nice. Yeah. You got the ones that are kind of the middle that can go one way or the other, and then you've got ones that are like, okay, you put a lot of work into these dogs, but really, what are we going to get? Should we be fighting that? You know, whatever's kind of here genetically. 
Man, but, when you um, tell people yeah, that, we, that God bless America. When you tell people that that breed dogs, you're like, you have 10 dogs yeah. and about 60% of them are going to work and the other 40% not. And man, talk about some hurt fucking feelings. Woo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that goes into the whole thing. And one, another reason why people say, why do I like dogs? I like dogs because I don't really deal with any of the politics or the arguments. Dachshunds, I think, are just funny looking dogs and they make me happy. And that's, that's a whole different thing. You know? Yes. Um, but yeah, so they would come back and they'd have a few days to adjust and then they would go through a process. And the whole time that I was there, that testing process, not just at seven months, but the one for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks and seven months was all designed by Stuart, by, by Stuart Hayward. So there was these score sheets and it's, it's all filmed. It's pretty cool. There's a lot of information that was collected and, um, yeah, so go through this whole process, and then it's kind of like a somewhat of a group, kind of like yay or nay, thumbs up, thumbs down, do we want to hold on to it? Um, for sure, there's the ones that you already knew before the test because you're already kind of ready for that dog to come back from the family because you're like, yeah, this dog's going to be, you know, super awesome to work, and you're ready to get that dog back. Um, so there's those dogs, you know, that before you even tested them, you knew how they were, they were sticking around. And then there's the other ones that you're like, you know what, this dog looks, you know, they're borderline, they could go one way or the other, looks let's let them hang out for a while. And I think a lot of those kind of decisions could be processed that way, or I would, I would at least view it this way because it wasn't my money, <laughs> you know, like I'm not feeding this dog. I'm not doing, <laughs> you, you know, like what you were saying with, with down with LA, like it's different there with the DOD with that program, because it's like, it's a government funded program. If there's a reason why I'm not breeding a bunch of dogs to try to raise and do that. And there's people that do it and people that do it well. And you know, you guys know that, um, but you know, I, I had a dollar for every time someone was like, Oh, you should, you know, breed those dogs and you can sell them. I'm like, yeah, there's so many things that can go wrong. You can, you know, you breed these two phenomenal dogs and you're like, Oh, it's just going to be the best litter ever. And no. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not, maybe it is in terms of working characteristics, but you've got a health issue or there's some kind of medical problem that gives you a big vet bill. I and mean, there's a lot of variables that can factor in there that can really throw it off. But, yeah, so in terms of putting them on odor, going back to what you're saying, um, once we had the dogs that we knew were going to stick around, the other ones were weeded out, they're spayed and neutered. And when I was there, the families had the first option to adopt them. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's how it is now. There were some people that said that that shouldn't be that way because people could fail dogs on purpose. But I never saw – and that goes back to you selecting the right families to do – or people to do this. You know, you don't want – have people that you thought were going to intentionally try to fail their dog to get a free Malinois. But, um, yeah. And then once they were, the dogs were staying, um, and again, it was kind of a constant cycle. If you got the dogs that are just coming back from families at seven months and you've got the dogs, you know, that are normally a couple months ahead of them. And then a couple months ahead of that, you've got another series up until that one year cutoff point. And, um, but they were put on odor relatively, you know, before too long. It, um, when I was there working with Art, we would we'd do some that kind of simple Kong search games, you know, on furniture, on dressers and stuff. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the typical stuff. And, but yeah, we put them on chlorate, testing chlorates first because we didn't have to have a bomb hauler bring, like, uh, an explosive kit to us. So we could just get, you know, chlorates were something that we could get easier. And so that's what we put them on first. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so... But it's it's a it's a really cool program, and I know when you hear the feedback from 
from hand, military handlers, like they normally, they really, really like the puppies. You know, they, you know like you said, they're, you can tell a, a homegrown dog from the, the puppy program by it has double first letter of its name. So, you know, if its name was Ted, it'd be like T-T-E-D, you know. So that's how people know the difference. Um, I got there on, and they go through the alphabet. I got there on the first L litter. And when I left in 2008, and I kind of stayed on, I was, I worked part time on that contract still, even when I went over to DTS, just, I would oversee the other trainers at the puppy program. When I was at DTS, I worked eight hours a week. I'd come in on Saturdays and do it, but I was there until the second go around of the alphabet at the S litter. Excellent. It's, it's a cool program. So, um, you know, this kind of leads us right into the detection portion. So um, you did a lot of detection work and imprinting. Like you said, you started on chlorates because it's the easiest to get and the precursors and, and um, they're all part of like HME stuff. Um, so, and, you know, that was the easiest way to start. So at some point you realized, which is what we're going to talk about when we get, come back from break, that um, detection work is not only for military and law enforcement dogs. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. So uh, everybody, don't fast-forward through the commercials, and uh, we'll be back in just a second. All right, Highland Canine in Harmony, North Carolina, offers, offers training, seminars, consulting globally for police, military, and non-government agencies. They provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization. Check out their wide array of handler courses, instructor courses, supervisor courses, and online courses Ted, where can they find them? Uh, you can find them at tacticalpolicek9training.com. The canine is letter K number nine. It's no secret that we love Ray Allen canine equipment. We use their products every single day at the kennel. Their mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in the quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and ring sport, to ex- and to exceed our customers' expectations and deliver on time every time at a fair price. We believe that they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything canine. You don't have to be a police officer or a military handler. They cover everything all the way down to pets. They have literally everything but the dog and the car. Um, so, Eric, where can you find them, and how can you get a discount? Uh, we love those guys, man. RayAllen.com is the website. Be sure to add Working Dog Radio for 10% off the discount code. Yeah, go check out their decoy armor, too. We really like that at HRD. We get it. Fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need that high-quality food to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do. Kinetic Dog Food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs. They have a full line of foods and supplements available, and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs and hundreds of departments across the U.S. And you can buy it locally or online at Tractor Supply, and they're also great people. Ted, where can people find them? You can get them at kineticdogfood.com or online uh, or at Tractor Supply, like Eric just said. One thing that's really cool about them is if you contact them via the phone, they'll walk you through what you're feeding now and the difference of what their their food will and to make suggestions on what you need. But uh, fantastic stuff for sure. Hit them up, kineticdogfood.com. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training. If it's electronic, 
Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. And I'm telling you folks, the Dogtra YS600 bark collar is the best on the market. It will change your life. Ted, tell them where to find them, how to get a discount. Yep. Head over to dogtra.com. Use the discount code WDR10 to get 10% off any single item over 200 bucks. Uh, yeah, you love the YS600. I love the ball droppers, and I love the 1900 hands-free. All of my dual-purpose dogs head out the door with those bad boys. All right, everybody, we are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. Back from commercial break. Uh, go back and listen to the commercials. We've got some new stuff in there. we got, uh, of course, our usual great um, discount codes. If you guys don't like listening to the commercials on our Patreon account, Working Dog Radio, under patreon.com, uh, the podcast comes out a day early, commercial-free. So uh, something for you to check out if you're interested. Uh, we are talking to Andrew Ramsey from Ramsey Canine. Um so leading up to every, where we're at now, everything, we talked about puppies, the inside workings of kind of how things work at Lackland on that end of things. Um, we're lucky because Andrew had uh, his experience in the whole gamut of the puppy program and then got to work with the import dogs and things like that. Um, everybody knows that one of the big things that they do at Lackland is nose work, detection. Uh, the explosive detection is, um, you know, the bread and butter for the military dogs. When I... I worked the uh, West Coast contract for Cobra Canine for the uh, Navy SEALs for a little while. Detection was was definitely the predominant thing that we worked on. Um, so it's super important to do. Um, the advantage, I'm assuming, Andrew, that you get is when you're there working so many dogs. I mean, working four dogs at a time, Doing the uh, doing the markers and things like that, and you get better every dog you're working, and everything your your timing is better, and everything keeps going. Um, but when you leave there with all that experience, what'd you do with it? Yeah, so I I had visited California, uh, the Bay Area, in like said July 2009. Liked a lot of things about this area and some dog opportunities here, so. Yeah, I left Lackland in February, March 2010 and moved to the Bay Area. And my original intent when I started Ramsey Canine and what I did in the beginning and uh, do a little bit now, but not so much, was, you know, law enforcement. I was used to doing, um, you know, stuff for patrol and detection for military. And so um, that was kind of my primary focus, as well as some protection sport. Um, training as well. I had my, my first Malinois fusel. got a Mondial Ring 3 on him, and I was a Mondial Ring trial decoy for a while. But um, I started to get a lot of um, inquiries about people that wanted to do, you know, detection essentially with their pet dogs. And um, the sport of canine nose work just kind of started in Southern California and growing at that point, you know, still growing now. And it's getting more and more requests for people to assist with their dogs in those training. And I slowly started to switch over to that becoming the bulk of what I was doing. Um, now, like you said, I had a whole lot of experience with, you know, from the puppy program, I had a lot of experience of doing initial detection with young Malinois that were a totally clean slate that no one had messed up. 
you know, no one had done anything horribly long to them in terms of the training process. So I knew that really well from doing that with another, you know, one other trainer and myself normally having about 20 dogs that we will do and work with. And then the last two years of DTS being assigned, you know, four dogs, but that was a different picture because you get the European dogs that, you know, with all the dogs you work them for a while and you say, okay, this is why somebody sold you, you know, you kind of see some of this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you, you guys know how that is. So it was kind of yeah. a different experience from the, the super, often super nice, you know, young Malinois that no one had done anything with to these dogs that we just got to make numbers and, and crank them out. Um, but that was a very different side of things than what I was seeing with, you know, Fifi, the Chihuahua mix or whatever that someone was bringing to me for this, this sport. And um, I often explain to people that where I am now in terms of how I do nose work detection, you know, whatever, sim work, whatever you want to call it, uh, a huge amount of it has been trial and error and learning from mistakes of things that I thought were going to work that didn't, um, you know, lots of things over time were revealed to me. Just, I happened to observe them, you know, and just was at the right place at the right time and to make, you know, particular observations about these different types of dogs doing the activity. And then there, you know, there was other information that I would take in that I would think, oh, I think I'm going to try this and it's going to work. And it either would or it wouldn't. But um, I was just fortunate to have, Again, like, you know, being the right place at the right time and when all this kind of took off to have access to a lot of different dogs from different backgrounds. Um, in 2000 and I want to say 11, I, I made originally two different training DVDs through Learberg, which they don't sell anymore because it kind of the training, um, my system changed. But if you look back then, how I was doing things very, very different from 2010 or 11 to even to like 2013 and um, things, you know, as, as time went on, it changed. But I was fortunate to, to make a lot of these observations, um, I would say really through two different, you know, windows of opportunity. One of them being seminars. Um, I've done over 100 sem uh, seminars in 22 states with different types of dogs doing this. And it wasn't like where I was going to all these clubs where they had the same type of high drive, you know, working dogs. In the beginning, it was, you know, it might have been a Schutzen club or something like that. But then next thing I know, it was an agility group. And then it's an obedience, you know, show group, you know, um, purely positive people, e-collar trainers, people that had never used food in training, um, you know, pure yank and crank compulsion trainers, uh, clicker trainers, just a little bit of everything. So to try to, hone in or isolate the key variables that would apply to all the different types of dogs. I really saw a lot of that through the seminars. Um, doing my trainer's course gave me a different perspective because I, not so much about the dogs, you know, so, or so much, but more so about what people could pick up in terms of skills and um, learning opportunities that, that worked well with the humans. So, um, again, my, my system kind of changed because in the beginning it was something that was, I would say, more catered towards skilled trainers with highly motivated dogs. Uh, I quickly realized that that did not matter at all in terms of the, like, the general selection or the market of people that were doing this. I needed to be focusing on a system that would work 
with either very new to dogs or dog training um, humans and very, you know, dogs of extremely low levels of motivation that possibly have social and or environmental issues. And so my system changed to kind of work with the, the more extreme types of, of dogs and humans and still be successful. And then, of course, it works with the, the highly motivated dogs and the, the skilled dog trainers with good timings as well. But, um, yeah, that, uh, that started in, um, you know, about 2011 or so. There was, back then, just one original organization here in the United States. Um, I co-wrote the rules for the UKC for their, their nose work program and was the, the first judge for their, you know, the program for UKC. And competed with a mixed breed dog that was five eighths Malawas, had some other stuff kind of thrown in there in the original organization. Um, but then I like moved on to, you know, help create yeah, the UKC creating an, another organization. And now there's, you know, there's multiple organizations that you can compete and title in for nose work, including AKC. Uh, I, I met with them in like 2013 and they said they would make a nose work program, but it didn't actually happen until a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, in terms of that, it just, it was very, very different. And I, you know, the one thing I would say when I first started doing seminars that I would, you know, I'd make it very clear. I'm, I'm a dog trainer first. I'm much more of a hands-on person than a public speaker. Um, I, my original seminars, I almost didn't even want to talk about, like, Hey, just bring in a dog. Let's start working dogs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, yeah. but then you realize, okay, there's, there's people that want it. They, they want to hear about different things and discuss theory and talk of this and that. So, okay, you got to do some of that, but that's definitely, I'm not the person that that's my, my gig if I have my choice. But, um, yeah, it started to change when I just, I would see the different varieties of, of dogs that were doing this in the people and what methods worked and, and what, you know, wasn't as successful with them actually being able to replicate it. So, in the nose sport, like say for AKC, what what are the odors? So, in most of the organizations, it's birch, anise, and clove is what you you commonly see, and you know instead of explosive or, or narcotics, you know. So it's essential oils, and they'll take a Q-tip, they'll cut it in half, and um, then it, you know that's what is used to hold the odor and then that's actually what's hidden somewhere in, you know, the various training, you know, the search areas. Are, are all the other organizations that pretty much the same? There, um, there's some little subtle differences between the different organizations, you know, um, you, yeah, like there's some different odors, but birch, anise and clove are extremely common as far as across the board. And then the search areas are, you know, normally broken up into interior, exterior vehicle and container and containers like boxes, like similar to like a luggage search. Um, they have uh, an underground or buried hide. They have some water hides and some different organizations now. But, um, yeah, when I first started doing it, I was much more... Um, I'll give my honest opinion to people. And again, you know, going way back when I first started doing this, where I would say, you know, and honestly, we can try to do this with your dog, but I don't know if your dog will do this. Um, because I, you know, I just, I hadn't done it. So I didn't know if it was possible. And 
quickly realized that, you know, that all dogs have amazing noses. And so that nose is not the, the part of the equation that's, you know, is going to be so much lacking from the highly motivated dog to the typical pet dog. It had much more to do with their actual, um, you know, the motivation. Um, and when we think of motivation, often, you know, it's for like possession of a toy or like a reward, like physical possession and a hunt drive for said reward and whatnot. Um, I used to cross my fingers and hope that people were going to show up with these highly motivated dogs that were going to bite my hands off, you know, for a, for a toy, because that's just what I knew. Um, but then I quickly realized that I could do just by changing different aspects of the process, I could train the dogs to a very, very similar outcome, but just, um, you know, finding what motivated them and working them a little bit differently. And, uh, that's where, you know, my, my system of how I would, how I do this evolved quite a bit when I started working with food dogs and how am I going to get a food dog to have a focus response? And then, you know, and the incorporation of a marker and a clicker and all that, which, um, I, I was not, and am not, you know, so much a clicker trainer in terms of like what people would think in the traditional sense of that, you know, definition. Um, I used a, a verbal marker and, Michael had been a huge influence on my philosophy and a lot of things with dog training and, you know, his, the system of like that he uses, but at Lackland, they were not using any kind of clicker or marker at the time that I left in any way in detection. And they were just kind of starting to implement what they call, you know, CS, uh, CST, the clear signals training and the incorporation of a verbal marker and with food and obedience and in terms of the protection of the, the biting control exercises. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of trial and error in the very beginning of how am I going to get these different types of dogs to, to do this and do it for working for food. Um, now that, and there's a lot of people doing that now, but back then there, there was way less. And, and the original organization was a, against training a formal response behavior to the dog. So I kind of, there was some differences in philosophy with with that as well because you know i was saying well no if you do this correctly it's not going to lower their motivation or, or drive to do the work um whereas they were saying you know these pet dogs are totally different and you they shouldn't necessarily have the formal response behavior when they they locate the target over so one thing that a lot of people always <clears throat> a lot of canine handlers worry about whether no matter what their discipline is Explosive narcotics, like, you know, electronics, whatever. Everybody was worries about certifications. Um, it's not judged. It's generally pass-fail with the exception of, like, some of the USPCA stuff. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you either pass or you don't. Most state certifications, like Cleet, and I know Opata with Eric is a, is a state certifier. So, um, you know, it's pass-fail, right? Like, um, so talk a little bit about um, what the difference is between a state or a national certification for detection for explosives or narcotics and even the military certification versus what it looks like for a UKC, AKC nose work judging certification or uh, like difference between how they judge it and evaluate it. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there was definitely a difference in that. So the bulk of my experience was with explosive dogs, you know, for the military. Um, all the dogs from the puppy program, we were, only training explosives 
And then most of the dogs like that are coming from Europe and most of those dogs are becoming bomb dogs, you know, a small amount of dope dogs. So that was kind of my experience and background. Um, I had never really thought about or considered timing and like in, in searches, I was much more, my concern was much more an effective search and not missing any kind of productive areas and moving through, um, the search area in a way that would be ideal for that dog and any other person accompanying that, that dog team, if they were explosive. Uh, so it's different for me to think about it from the way that the titling um, systems work for the competitive nose work sport, where it's a timing thing. So within the different search areas, let's say you've got 30 dogs, um, the dogs that are going to, to pass or title are going to find the hides and all of the search areas, you know, for that level. Um, and not have any, you know, false responses or issues where, um, you know, they said there was odor present when there wasn't, and then also not have misses, you know, where the, there was hides that they missed. So when you take in out of that, say, 30 or so total, you take the dogs that found all the hides in the different areas. The scoring system after that is done by who did it the fastest. So the dog that gets first place found all the hides and they did it, you know, um, the fastest. And then depending on the organization, again, like it's hard to make like broad statements that apply to all of them, but that, I mean, that's pretty much, that would apply to all of them there, um, what I just said. Um, then often they break it down also into like placements, normally first, second, and third for ribbons um, within the different search areas. So like there's like the overall fastest dog, and then also they do the placements, you know, for all the, the interior search area and then, you know, say the exterior search area and, you know, just the different what they call search elements. So um, that was that was different for me. And you see, uh, I was used to just doing really, really methodical searches. Um, the evaluators for the military could vary, but, you know, there's a lot of them that would be like, okay, if you miss a hide if you move on past an area that's a miss you know it's fine you're not going to go back um at once you kind of cleared an area whereas i'd see so many people that were doing this as a sport they kind of just let their dogs wander around and and do whatever they want without having a lot of uh, a, a plan you know of how they're going to actually clear a different you know in the area that they're searching so and and all those things kind of factor into how I, I train the way that I do, like, um, in terms of methodical search, like I, I teach dogs to, again, I, all the dogs I trained for the military were focus response dogs that would, you know, search that bracket, go to source, walk back into a sit and then focus at source because they knew that their toy was going to be tossed there. Um, dogs now, like I teach them like a focus response at source, but I want the dog's nose to get as close as source as possible until a physical barrier prevents them from getting any closer. Um, I don't teach, you know, a sit or a down or, or whatnot. So I teach like a nose, a source freeze. Um, once they do that and I mark, the dog's free to kind of do whatever they want, but I bring the reward to them, which is different than other people that would, you know, click and the dog would return back. But it's not so much in terms of the training process as much as it is I want them to, and again, this isn't it's always so much for me. It's often for the people that I work with. Um, 
I want the dog to be right there to pick up their search. So if I have a search area and there's two hides that are relatively close to each other, like, they're, you know, say there's two hides that are relatively close in proximity, the dog searches, they find the first one, um, that person could click or say yes, the dog could come back to them, they give them a treat, they tell them to search, that dog runs back and they may think that they're going to that hide they just found, when in reality they could be going to the hide that's relatively close to it. And they might call them off and be like, hey, find more or search, you know, search again, thinking that they're going to that one they just found. So um, there's a lot of little subtle things like that that I do that have not so much to do with just training philosophy and, and training a dog to do something as much as they do with the rules of the actual different sports and whatnot. Um, yeah, so like I wanted to search, go to source, freeze, I mark. Once I mark, they can come back to me if they want, but they know I'm going to bring them the reward, whether it's food, toy, or whatever, there to source. But then after that, I'm going to cast them into their, I'm going to make my presentation to the right, you know, right off from where we just found that one. And we're going to carry on in a really methodical, um, you know, search pattern. So in the competition, you said it's, you know, done through who did it fastest. Is it, the, is the handler to call it out when they, when they're calling it as a, as a find? Correct. Yeah. So they'll say a, like the dog, it has to be a, you know, obviously a really very you know, clear indication or alert response behavior so the judge can tell, like they can't just call it out because it's kind of on the honor system. They're not moving the hides around. I mean, after the, the first dog goes, they can come out and tell everybody, hey, you know, this is where the hides are, but they don't do that, you know, because it's on the honor system. But so obviously the judge needs to see that the dog showed change of behavior, went to source and offered a response behavior, but the handler calls alert. And yeah, so that kind of goes back to the reason I don't, uh, teach like a sit or a down or anything. I teach a nose and source until there's a physical barrier or a height limitation. Like later on, there's going to be hides that are too high for my dogs to get to. And what I want them to do is get as close as they can and freeze. And they'll see them kind of standing on their back legs and pointing their nose up in the air. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, so they call alert and then the judge will say if they're correct or not. So um, um, I've watched some of the AKC, UKC guys and girls um, with like whatever dog they have that lives with them every day, whether it's like, you know, chihuahuas or fucking collies or I've seen all kinds of shit. So um, I'm routinely amazed and same thing with um, agility handlers. So I'm routinely amazed at how skilled um, some of these handlers are in the upper levels. Right. And I'm like, shit. You're better than most fucking canine handlers I've seen. So, um, you know, if you had to pick a couple of things that canine handlers could learn from the civilians finding clove, <laughs> what would it be? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I just want to hear you say it. Uh, I mean, well, you could say a, a couple of different things. And a lot of times you see with law enforcement or like with military handlers and stuff, I mean, they're handlers first and they have a whole bunch of other stuff to worry about too. Right. Um, you know, on top of, they're not necessarily dog trainers first and then performing in the law enforcement role. Um, which is another distinction I always make about myself. Like I never had to go into harm's way. I never had to put myself at risk in anything of the dog that I've ever trained anywhere at any time. So that, that's also a different thing. But, um, so much of it you see, obviously, is handler cues and, and feedback that they're giving the dogs, whether they know it or not. Um, the use of a marker or a clicker, when um, that started to come into play, I mean, made a huge difference for different subtle things that you could mark and reinforce. It was much more um, little nuances 
that could be reinforced and you could explain to the dog, yes, I'm glad you did that. Um, you know, that, that was a huge difference for me from what I was used to as far as tossing the toy at source, like the timing of how that had to be done. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely correct in terms of like high level handlers, especially in agility. That's a, you know, extremely talented people there. Um, but the big thing is, yeah, handler choose them, you know, not trusting the dog, um, assuming that they know where things are going to be hidden. I mean, it's often, uh, I would I'd say, so, you know, can be an issue Well, on both sides. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot. I mean, I think I, you'd see a lot of differences in the same way with the different protection sports and military law enforcement dogs. Um, there can be extreme levels of precision in the various protection sports, you know, that you may not see always in law enforcement. Um, law enforcement dogs are, you know, doing something much more real, obviously, and, and military dogs different. But, you know, you have people that are doing a lot of protection sports where they are professional trainers, and so they're viewing it kind of different. And, yeah, like when, when I first started doing this with the pet dogs, and it was... Um, Things that were, I knew that a lot of the things did need to change in terms of how this was going to be done. I just thought of it from a, a clean slate perspective. Like, okay, how would I do this? When I saw the way that some other people were doing it, um, it didn't make as much sense. So to, just to say, okay, I'm going to try this or that. And then some of those things, again, worked, some of them didn't. But in terms of specific things, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen really good handlers on both sides. There's some people that are, I think are just naturally um, good at handling in terms of detection and get it. And there's some people you got to say the same, you know, as some students, regardless of what they're doing, you got to repeat yourself quite frequently. Um, yeah. It's, that's been something that's been, I'd say it's been quite enjoyable for me to see just the different types of people doing this and the different types of dogs. It's, is um, something in the beginning I wouldn't have thought that I would enjoy as much as I have in the time that I've done it. That, and, yeah. and it's still, I, I bet everybody. Yeah, Good. Everybody I know that helps train folks for this stuff really likes it. Like, or, and I think, I think they are surprised at how much they like it. Um, you offer a because uh, here's the here's the thing. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this is. You know, it's working dog radio, and um, some folks might not think that, um, you know, uh, teaching teaching a Labradoodle to do this or something like that. They're, oh, those aren't working dogs. But it's also, this is also a podcast for people who are in the business or want to be in the business or trying to find ways to make a business out of their ability when it comes to training dogs. And so... Um, you know, we've talked to, I've talked to a lot of trainers, uh, usually off, you know, off the air, off the side, and they're surprised at how, how they've been able to turn this into like a, a nice little revenue stream for themselves and their business. And um, I noticed on your website, Ramsey Canine, it's R-A-M-S-E-Y, letter K number nine dot com. Real nice, easy, interactive website to get on there that you offer train the trainers course. What does that look like? Yes. So, um, my train the trainers course, which is a 
a big focus of mine now. And actually, I, you've had some people that on your on this show that have taken my Transference course. Um, it's but it's a course that is at this point I don't break it up into law enforcement or like just civilian specific. It's um, it, it breaks down to most of the people that are doing this are wanting to do it for the the sport of nose work. But I also have people that want to do, you know, that want to do or are currently involved in, say, bed bug detection or they train diabetic alert dogs or, um, you know, like there's law enforcement people, whether it's explosives or narcotics, um, really anything. So my course is designed to train any person, to train any dog, to find anything. Um, and that sounds may sound kind of strange, but it's really about a system that regardless of the type of dog or the person or the target odor that they're wanting to have the dog locate, that's what I train people to do. And, um, my, my experience in background from the military, from training the dogs the way I did there, I was used to training the dogs, getting them, you know, up to certification standards, they're certified and then they're, they're given to a handler, you know, somewhere around the world. Um, my train the trainer course and like the system that I use for what I do is, is done in a, in a similar way. Like the people that I work with they're I break it down to the trainer position or role and then the handler. And, um, and so the handler is kind of doing, you know, more handling, but the trainer is involved with the aid placement and where the hides are going to be. And then all the marking and reinforcing and the, the building of duration of searching behavior, the odor recognition, and then training the actual response for the dog. The trainer is the person that's doing all that, and the handler is kind of just handling the leash. That, that's how my system is set up to work. And the people that come and do my train the trainer course, they learn that system, and then they can go back. It's you know it's normally people from out of the area or other country or whatever. They go back to wherever they're from, and they can you know offer some kind of detection. Training, which is again, this is normally for people that want to do this as a a pet dog business for the sport or just for the activity. There's a whole lot of people that do this with their pet dogs that that don't necessarily want to compete. I mean, of course, you have the the ribbon chaser title people that want to fill the wall with stuff, you know, and um, the alphabet of stuff they want after their dog's name, and they're just going to do nose work because they do all these other activities with their dog. But there's actually a lot of people that go, hey, I just think I want to do something else with my dog because it either didn't excel in these other dog activities I tried or their dog is at a point in its working career or in it just in its age that it's not physically capable of doing agility anymore or a protection sport or some kind of thing that, you know, dog activity might be higher impact on the dog, you know, as an old age. Um you know, so it works with blind dogs, deaf dogs. Um, I'm in the process actually of working now with a blind handler, which is a different challenge for me. I, um, I kind of like working with anything. I kind of um, think it's fun to try to do this with any kind of dog, any kind of person, um, you know, to make the system work. And that's what the, my trainer's course is. And so the people that come and, you know, they want to do it as a sport, they can, they can bring their dog and they can do a whole bunch of training with their particular dog in a short amount of time. Um, I have access to other dogs from a shelter and other dogs in the area that the students get to work on. Um, I have, you know, working handlers that bring their dogs. And a lot of times the, the professional handlers or the working handlers 
think it's a really interesting experience to see these dogs of lower levels of motivation um, do this activity or, you know, do a searching nose work activity gives them often a more of an appreciation for their highly motivated dog that, you know, will chase a ball off a cliff or whatever um, to see these dogs that are, you know, might be scared of their own shadow in the beginning, but work through those environmental issues and through, you know, restrained enticement and building of motivation for the reward incrementally extending the amount of time that that particular dog will search. And, you know, in the beginning of the way I do it, it's just for their reward. But then later on, you know, they know that when they find the target odor, they're getting that reward. But it's, it's very cool for people to see those dogs that on the day one, you know, they come into the training room and they're like, they're very unsure of themselves and they don't know what to do. And um, next thing you know that they're, they're at the end of the leash pulling, ready to go and, and wanting to search. So, yeah, I, um, I originally started teaching that course in 2011 and it's, it's evolved over the years and it's a lot of fun. Teaching a, a blind handler is interesting because I, I feel most yeah. of the trainers or handlers that I've trained are deaf. So I've um, <laughs> yeah. been able to yeah. to uh, <laughs> deal with, you know, one thing. So <laughs> so anyways, um, yeah. this has been really cool, man. Like really cool. I was looking at your website. On, on the website, RamseyK9.com, um, pretty much everything you need to look at, the trainer trainer's course, he does video consultations for nose work, private lessons. He's got seminars listed on there. There's the store on there. It's an easy way to find it. He's got uh, uh, nose work kits, a calendar of where he's going to be. All Everything you need to know is you can find on um, RamseyK9.com. Uh, what's your social media? How can people get a hold of you anywhere? Um, yeah, Ramsey Nose Work on Facebook. I'm not super active like I should be, I know, um, on there. But, yes. Yeah, since we are doing this podcast, I did want to offer and extend um, people an opportunity to, especially for my train the trainer course, be able to take that course um, at, a, at, a, at a large discount. So um, if people will contact me through um, either through my website or through any of the social media outlets, like I said, I'm not uh, super active on that, but, and, and mention, um, the podcast, you know, Working Dog Radio. Um, they can definitely do the course at any point in time um, for the remainder of this year or 2021. Um, and I was going to do it for 25% off of the cost that are listed there. Oh, shit. Oh, holy crap. That's there awesome. you go. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to, I, and, I, I'm sure our media guy will find a creative way to write that into the show notes. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, I mean, I'm, I was going to figure out how long I can do that, but, I, you know, at least for, I mean, I'd have to put a, a cutoff date for that, obviously. But yeah. and, and to be honest, a lot of that has to do with COVID and how much it's had an effect on my business and other dog trainers' businesses. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I would, like, want absolutely. to get more people into the course because most of my people are not from the area, you know. So because of travel restrictions, it's, it's been a challenging situation for me but then also i've talked to a lot of other dog trainers and it's really harmed their business so I was like you know what this will be good for me be good for other trainers and um regardless of what people want to use this for whether it's a professional thing or just a pet thing and then also regardless of their background or other systems they've used um it's it's a really beneficial thing to come and to work the different dogs and see the way that i do it so um yeah 
if they uh, mention the you know Working Dog Radio and contact me, I'm, I'm happy to honor that. That's, That's awesome, man. That's, That's really awesome. cool. Yeah, we'll definitely pump the crap out of that. Um, yeah, for sure. Ted, where about you? Where are you at? Uh, Instagram, Ted underscore Summers, um, and then Torchlight K9, letter K number nine. And, of course, the podcast has its own Instagram, uh, working underscore dog underscore radio, uh, where we do <clears throat> a lot of uh, giveaways and uh, announcements about what we're doing. And then, of course, HRD Police K9, letter K number nine dot com is where you can find us on all of this on Facebook and on Instagram both for uh all the companies that we're associated with and find out where we're going to be and what was going on we got uh more hrds and more decoy schools and we just like i said we just released the swat stuff for um hrd um but yeah and you're where van sk9 on instagram um and uh van sk9 academy on facebook and if you just like pictures of dogs at doggy daycare we have van s Doggy Daycare on Instagram now and Vanis Doggy Daycare on Facebook. Pretty much that's it, man. Um, Andrew, this was awesome. Loved it. Loved to get in to talk to you. Cool. Um, you got a pretty nice, interesting background in the dog world. And it was, uh, it's nice to get, remind people that you're still here, even with COVID, that you, cool. you know, you can, you offer a lot to folks and there's, it's neat, man. I, I, I'd like to see some people take advantage of that stuff. Yeah. Faux show. Well, cool. yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me on here. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and everybody else, we'll uh, be back. We got some good. Um, uh, we got some more guests lined up, uh, taking us through the remainder of the dumpster fire that is 2020. So, um, yeah, everybody, stay safe. Don't <laughs> lick doorknobs and wash your hands. Uh, <laughs> we'll see everybody soon. Our very first sponsor of the podcast is our good friend Arno out at ALM. And I got to tell you, we love this guy and his stuff. He has the best tugs on the market. He has easily, without a doubt, the best hidden sleeves on the market. He's got suits, pre-made. He's got custom-made suits he'll do for you. Arno's a great guy, man. He's doing all the work himself. I'm telling you, uh, you cannot say enough about his stuff, his tugs. Um, guys, you got to check him out. ALMK9Equipment.com. Uh, discount code WD radio for 10% off your first order. Check them out. ALM canine equipment.com. One of our other sponsors has been with us since the beginning and some of our favorite people in the industry, the tripwire operations group guys based out of Gettysburg, Gettysburg based out of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. They're an internationally recognized leading provider of product services, training for federal state and local law enforcement agencies and military units and special operations. They are an ATF licensed explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits for the dog guys, and they deliver. These kits are great for detection canine and printing, and they have three different kits to choose from. The use of all three kits combines creates a complete explosive threat picture for canine teams. Be sure to check them out at tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D-E-G-E dot net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, hrdpolicecanine.com, and look for the nearest seminar near you. You got your reasons, I got my
Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Duck Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.